Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 157, and it's 18th of April, 2021. Today, we're joined by Liam, host of the Paradise Cine podcast and friend of the show, for a discussion of our memories of the prequel era. Introduce yourself, Liam. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Kirsty. This is absolutely terrifying. Um, <laughs> thank you for having me on. Uh, so to explain who I am, as you say, I'm the host of the Paradise Cine podcast, which is a film cop podcast where uh, some of the episodes I do, people create their own film festivals. And Rachel was my very first guest. And according to Kirsty, I caused embarrassment for her when she couldn't remember the first line of The Force Awakens. Um, <laughs> I kid, of course, because uh, Rachel's been very kind uh, with my podcast. Uh, she's kindly guest hosted for six episodes. And uh, like I said, she was uh, the very first uh, guest on for the Utopia Film Festival. Is the only person on my wall of fame. I will say that as well. <laughs> And uh, she has helped me really, really rather a lot in helping my show grow. And um, yeah, I was delighted when uh, you both asked me to come on today. And uh, it it was quite the honour. And the stars have finally aligned. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, we're so happy to have you, Liam. Thank you for joining us. Um, Yeah, I think we wanted to have Liam on just because this is very much going to be like a nostalgic look back at our basically childhood memories <laughs> of the prequel era and Liam's a few years older so obviously like Liam doesn't have like perfect recall of the prequel era and wasn't like deep deep in fandom or anything but yeah we felt that he would be able to provide a slightly different perspective from us so yeah we're excited to have this discussion and indulge in a nice bit of nostalgia yeah and this is also the first time that Kirsty and Liam are speaking which is lovely we obviously had a bit of pre-show banter um but yeah it's lovely because you two are two of my closest friends so yeah it's awesome when like friends can meet other friends and yeah I'm just really glad to be doing this yeah it's really cool to have you on Liam and I have really enjoyed the Paradise Cine podcast ever since that first episode with Rachel so it's really cool for me to have you on yeah it was uh I heard you got 10 out of 10 on the quiz though um so that, wait did that, I yeah according to Rachel uh she wow. said she gave you the uh questions and you got 10 out of 10 um, I guess I'm so... more of a fan than Rachel what can I say <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not uh, the true fan because it's, it's very sad for me <laughs> I've not let Rach live that down um, every time she's guest hosted I think I've made a, a reference to it at least once <laughs> it's always different when you're the one on the spot though isn't it yeah and now this episode will begin to make things right there you go, <laughs> there you go. hooray hooray no um, uh, just a little peek behind an upcoming curtain Let's say Rachel got some revenge uh, in a future episode. That's all I will say on the matter. Okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, that is not a reference to Revenge of the Sith. I was going to say, that sounds like it fits perfectly with what we're going to talk about. But (laughs) Alas, no, but I do definitely get some sweet, sweet revenge. So, yeah, I'll share that episode when it comes out. And, yeah, um, it will be fun for people to hear me own Liam on his own (laughs) podcast. So, yeah, keep an ear out for that. (laughs) um okay cool so there's no real news that we're going to go into this time um 
like really when it's a topic like this that's so meaty and we're literally discussing three films in one it just doesn't really make sense for us to like do an extended news section and then segue into the topic so yep we're gonna go straight into that prequels discussion um and yeah like i do have like a bit of background here about how the prequels came to be but I don't think anyone needs me to read out the Wikipedia article about the background to the Phantom Menace. <laughs> so I think what I really wanted to do was kick off with like some of our own memories of the Phantom Menace coming out. Um, and yeah, this is mainly going to be a bit laughable, unfortunately, for some of the people listening, because it will just underline like how little I remember. <laughs> and perhaps the others too I haven't read their notes recently so they might remember just as little as me but thankfully we did ask for listener emails um, so they have been a really nice supplement to our own memories and helped to provide a bit of extra flavour so yeah for me like honestly I was like a kid I was about Anakin's age I suppose when Phantom Menace came out and the main thing I remember is there being like lots of hype around the film you know like you couldn't go into shops without seeing like Darth Maul posters and Star Wars bubble bath bottles (laughs) and yeah just like all the like trite merchandise essentially that you get every single time a big Star Wars film is released yeah like that's what my memory of the time around that film coming out is just seeing lots and lots of merch and I think also not even really associating that with the film so much, you know, like it was more about the tangible things I could play with that really registered for me. So yeah, like I still have, for example, it's like a bubble bath container, but it's also a pod racer game. So it has these like buttons in it and you can use them to like move the little pod racer <laughs> through the tunnels on the game. And it doesn't make any sense describing it like that, but it brought me a lot of joy and I found it again recently and that was a lovely, lovely feeling. So yeah, very exciting. Um, yeah. How about you, Kirsty? What do you remember? It's really strange because I don't, I have such a distinct memory of actually going to see The Phantom Menace with my sisters mm. and my dad. Yeah. I don't remember anything surrounding it. I don't remember seeing all of this stuff in the shops. I believe that it was there because I've heard what you've said and what other fans have said and like the Blast Point podcast that they did last year about it. Like it seemed like every possible thing had a a Phantom Menace version of it out there for sale. Mm -hmm. Somehow I was completely oblivious to it. I must have seen it on some level, but I didn't own any of it. And I don't remember wanting any of it. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like you, I was nine years old when it came out. So I just, I, I related to Anakin and I, I, you know, I just went into the film and I responded to it. But all of the rest of it, all of the hype, even like connecting it with the original trilogy, I don't, I don't remember doing that. It was just like, oh, cool, a new Star Wars film, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think it's also kind of impacted by your personal relationship with Star Wars up to that point. Because I think for me, like my earliest introduction to the original trilogy was probably through toys, you know, so it was through merchandise to begin with. It was playing with the old Kenner toys that my dad had. Yeah, that was like my Star Wars access point initially. So I think it kind of makes sense that someone like me who had that as their point of reference for Star Wars would focus on seeing lots of Star Wars stuff in the shops and noticing the bubble bath in the supermarket and stuff like and yeah it just reflects like a child's eye view of that time I suppose because 
yeah, you know what it's like when you're a kid, you're dragged around the supermarket and you're really bored and you're wandering <laughs> through the aisles and you're looking out for anything remotely interesting. And to me, that happened to be Star's bubble bath. Um, <laughs> but yeah, how about you, Liam? What do you remember of like the pre-release hype for The Phantom Menace? I remember it quite vividly, much like you. Um, I remember the little Darth Maul shampoo toppers, the Jar Jar Binks <laughs> lolly. Do you remember that one? <laughs> The one that, I've seen when that the on lolly Tumblr. was the tongue. Oh my days! Um, and I remember there was a big thing in my school where uh, Kellogg's released these little plastic busts, and I think they had um, ten of them. So you had Obi Wan, Qui Gon, and all that lot, and everyone was trying to collect them. And <laughs> like, I just remember everyone was eating Kellogg's cornflakes for about six months, trying to get all these things. Um, <laughs> Recently found them on eBay. Someone was trying to sell all 10 for like 35 quid. I think they're worth about 35p, mate, but that's beside (laughs) the point. Um, I remember going to watch the film because we watched it on uh, the opening weekend. And I had never seen my local cinema have a queue outside. So I didn't go to the cinema a huge amount as a kid. Um, It was very much a special occasion, birthdays and things like that. But I remember there being an enormous queue outside. And I was wondering, what on earth is this? And it was because everyone was going to see the Star Wars film. And it was also the first time that I remember more than one screen showing the same film. Because my local cinema at the time had four screens. So it was normally like the big blockbusters and then one for some indie film. Uh, But this was almost all... The Phantom Menace. It was just all-encompassing. Um, mm. In terms of my sort of growing up with Star Wars, I had just gotten into it. Right. Um, so, <laughs> really weird, but back in 96, I was going to visit my dad, and my brother picked me up, and he said, oh, let's go pick up a film while we wait for dad to turn up. I said, okay. And I picked up The Empire Strikes Back. But I only saw the first 70 minutes. And then I remember <laughs> in 97, they re-released the trilogy. Yes. Uh, in build the special editions. Yeah. In build-up to The Phantom Menace. And I wanted to watch Return of the Jedi. And I inadvertently ruined the twist. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had not finished The Empire Strikes Back. And then that Christmas, I got the uh, special edition gold Darth Vader case. Um and then I was like really into Star Wars for nice. about three, four years. So yeah, and so seeing, Phantom came out at the perfect yeah, time for you, basically. Exactly, I was the key demographic. I was the one going into Woolworths and seeing Darth Maul literally everywhere. Thanks for that, Liam. That's very detailed and a very vivid demonstration of like where you were at with the Phantom Menace around the time that film came out. Don't expect it for the other two. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. But yeah, honestly, in terms of seeing it at the cinema, I kind of feel embarrassed to say this. And I know it's ridiculous because I was a kid, you know, I didn't have any control over what I did or didn't do really when I was nine years old. But I didn't see it in the cinema. Um, Or at least as far as I'm aware, I didn't. And I've asked my like clueless dad, like, dad, did we go and see this in the cinema? And he's like, oh, I don't think so. And it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, Just in case he remembered anything I didn't. but yeah, I think the reality was that the town I grew up in, there just wasn't a cinema and it was a long journey to get there. 
and basically if you were going to a cinema it was because you were having a birthday party and you chose to go to the cinema or a friend was having a birthday party and they invited you to go to the cinema <laughs> there were basically very few other circumstances under which I'd go so I didn't see it until it came out on home release um, I, I feel like we had it on VHS first and then got the DVD and yeah I remember watching it like early you know relatively soon after it came out in cinemas and I did really enjoy it um, uh, but again I just it feels so weird you know because Star Wars has become so important to me now and technically speaking these are the films that are my generation you know they're the films that people of our age grew up with essentially but like I can't lie and say that it was hugely meaningful to me at the time I think I enjoyed it and I remember really liking Padme and particularly all the different costume changes I really enjoyed those um and also being very confused by the whole Padme and Sabe switcheroo which I know is meant to be confusing to some extent but I, I think even when it was revealed I was like what I, I just yeah it didn't sink in for me at all but yeah so I enjoyed it but it didn't like leave this like irresistible stamp on me you know that isn't like the turning point where I became like a super hardcore Star Wars fan so yeah how about you Kirsty what were your impressions of it at the time oh I loved it yeah oh, I mean awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah like <clears throat> I was thinking about how I really did grow up with those films in terms of like nine-year-old Anakin nine-year-old me and then like a few years later Anakin and Padme was kind of like just around the time where I'd be maybe more into like a love story and then as a teenager seeing Anakin being all emo so it's kind of perfect <laughs> sure um, yeah yeah yeah, I, you know, I just, I loved Padme and the Handmaidens. I thought Jar Jar was funny. I thought Maul was cool. I loved the music. Um, my dad took me and my sisters and he thought it was nonsense. But again, that wasn't necessarily because he was like attached to the original trilogy. I don't think he was a fan in the same way that it sounds like your dad was a fan. He just mm. wasn't a movie person. Like he has said that about all these different films that we've gone to watch together over the years. Like he said the same about Harry Potter and... Mm. You know, so, um, yeah, didn't take that too much to heart. But I guess that was, like, maybe the closest I got to, like, a real adult in my life kind of not liking the prequels and expressing that. But otherwise, yeah. it just didn't really register. I just liked the movie and my sisters did too. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's interesting you say that about your dad, Kirsty, and his reaction. Because I do remember my dad's reaction to it. And it was just kind of like a shrug. I guess because um, like he did really like the originals and what he's always said to me about the prequels was he just didn't care about what happened before the events of the originals yeah you know he just didn't want to see that story you know it didn't matter to him like which I think is completely legitimate and I do think that's quite a common feeling you know especially among some segments of the general audience yeah like he kind of shrugged it off but he was never like vitriolic about it you know he was never like oh it's so awful you know like he wasn't like ranting and raving he acted like a mature adult exactly yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> he acted in a measured fashion which yeah is good because it just left me free to like enjoy it and appreciate it on my own terms which i did and yeah, I also remember another huge thing for me around the time of Phantom Menace was actually the video game. I almost have more memories of playing the Phantom Menace oh. video game than I have of watching the movie. <laughs> and it was honestly a bit shattering for me because yesterday I looked up like a YouTube like playthrough of the game 
and the graphics which in my head were so good you know there were these really impressive <laughs> high quality graphics of all the characters with the likenesses from the movie and it's just like literally this like horrendous like cacophony of pixels <laughs> and it's kind of disturbing to look back at it and think wow that once looked good but you know that's revisionist because obviously mm. video games back then were so primitive that by those standards it was a pretty good looking game like not yeah. top tier but it looked pretty decent and yeah i just remember the pain of playing that game and just failing at it over and over and over and i never finished it for that reason i think you were meant to it's like the dark souls of uh like the playstation one era i remember i remember that game quite vividly as well me and my friends had it and Mm. there was a specific level where you actually did have to die i I don't know if it was a glitch but you did actually have to die at a certain point on the level so that you could actually progress past that point so i assume it was a glitch but yeah it was really difficult i never beat more on the game i remember Mm. i could never beat him I, i imagine if i go back i won't even get to him yeah there's a round where you have to escort padme like to get her to safety and i just remember her constantly dying and oh. i think that's the like round in the game where i just like gave up i was like i can't do this and now i think back and i really dislike that trope in video games where it's like the female character is always just this like object to be like navigated around like a nuisance essentially and yeah, like it, it wouldn't be done now. Let's put it that way. And it's especially annoying in the film. Padme is so like assertive, you know, and independent, and she does not need to be like shepherded like that. Um, but yeah, I guess that just reflects the biases of video game developers. <laughs> but yeah, let's go back to the film itself. When you actually saw Phantom Menace, what was your opinion of it, Liam? Like, how did it stand up for you, especially given that you had recently seen the originals? Yeah, so it was interesting. Um... The people I saw it with, I wouldn't say they were massive Star Wars fans. I, I think they were excited for the film, and they wanted to see it. So they come out, and they thought it was really good. And, of course, it was, like, key demographic for me. Mm. You know, the one thing I remember coming out was really wanting Darth Maul's double-edged lightsaber. Because <laughs> I'd only ever seen the single one. And to see suddenly one person wielding a double, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Because I was I was easily pleased as a child. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to get it out of the way. I liked Jar Jar. I still like Jar Jar. I think he's the same level as Ewok. So come at me. Um, oh, so... he's good. Like, <laughs> yeah. We like some Jar Jar love on this podcast. I like Jar Jar. Not afraid to say it. I don't think he's as bad as everybody else makes out. Um, but yeah. The pod racing as well. I, my, I remember my little mind being blown at that, and wishing that um, it was longer when I rewatched it when I got older. Because when you're a kid, that scene seems to be like ten, twenty minutes long, and it's not. It's about five. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just like, oh, this is incredible, and I wasn't actually that bored at like the bit where they're doing the trade federation scenes that everyone mm. seems to malign. And I, I was just like so engrossed in it. And I think that just is something that I am. But yeah, I I thought it was really good. Um, and yeah, the general buzz coming out of the cinema was that, yeah, a lot of people quite enjoyed it. But yeah. maybe uh, maybe I wasn't privy to some of the more vocal people at the time. Yeah, like... 
again like this is a very complex topic and there's a lot going on with it so i don't think we can have a full-scale discussion about it now but i do think that if you spoke to the average person who saw the phantom menace in 1999 they probably enjoyed it they probably liked it you know i do feel like it's a bit similar to the situation with the last jedi where it was more a question of the loyal fans in bunny ears like being very very vocal online about their displeasure with the choices that had been made in the film and like we're not going to turn this into like an accounting of all those choices you know that pissed people off you know it's been like done to death a million times yeah like and i really feel like that fan feedback was like massively inflated you know and it drowned out the views of the vast majority who at the very least just had a good time you know, and then moved on with their lives and didn't think that much more about it. Yeah, like like so many things, I think it's a distorted picture that we have now of the reaction to that film. You know, it's become so dominated by the opinions of a small group of people on the internet that have only become more and more prominent over time as the internet has become a more pervasive part of all our lives. That yeah it's easy to lose touch with the kinds of things that we're talking about you know where it's just this like innocent enjoyment of a thing you know and i think that's why it's nice to think back to more innocent times when we like approached things in a completely different context i think what really struck me again and i'm not i'm stating the obvious here but watching it again this week i was like this is so completely different from the original trilogy yeah and i took that as face value and it sounds like both of you did going into it even though you'd watched the originals and enjoyed them but like i didn't go into it expecting it to be just like them and it sounds like some people were you know really shocked with even the idea that they would portray anakin as a nine-year-old you know just why would you give us child little boy darth vader i guess if you just weren't expecting that and you had in your mind an idea of what the film was already going to be you might find it hard to reconcile, but I didn't really go in with any expectation. I mean, people probably should have expected that. I mean, given the amount of uh, sort of coverage it got in film magazines, and I remember old TV guides had these pullouts, and it was explaining all the different characters. So I think people should have expected it, and I've never understood why people want the same. And I agree with you. It, I've rewatched it this week as well and it is a completely different film to the original trilogy much in the same way the new trilogy is completely different and i don't understand why people are so hung up on wanting a fourth of the original trilogy leave that trilogy be you know that trilogy is its own thing and this was a new story it was going to be a new sort of sort of pathway into how episode four happened but yeah, I as a kid, I was excited for it. And I mean, I was excited for all three of them in a way, in different levels. But yeah, I, I've just never understood the sort of fan backlash against The Phantom Menace. And it's certainly not as bad as people make out. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like where there was backlash, you know, like on the internet forums and stuff, I think it really comes down to a question of time. Because if you think about Return of the Jedi came out in 1983 and then The Phantom Menace came out in 1999. So doing some maths of my poor brain, I think that's 16 years Yeah, apart. 16 years. 
Yeah, and you know, like the people that would have seen like the original trilogy and Return of the Jedi in particular and really glommed onto it, you know, say you're 12 in 1983, then you're in your 20s in the 1990s and you have very different expectations and interests from the child you and very different like priorities in terms of what you want from stories. You've also had lots of time to build up ideas about what a good Star Wars story is. And in the meantime, there's been stuff like the expanded universe with um, like the Thrawn novels and the Dark Horse comics and stuff. And all that stuff is like feeding into the fans' minds and like giving them this like broad range of types of Star Wars stories. And people are thinking about, oh, what kind of Star Wars stories do I want to see? And I think a lot of those people, they had very fixed ideas in their minds about what a good Star Wars movie was and even should be. And then when Phantom Menace comes out, and obviously, you know, they weren't hiding the fact that Darth Vader was going to be a little boy. That was one of the earliest teaser posters <laughs> showing like little Anakin with the shadow of Vader behind him. So they were very transparent about that. But I think there's a difference between knowing it's going to happen and then seeing it play out on screen and not liking it. So I'm not saying that any of this is like a good way to be a fan or like to optimise your enjoyment of something. I think the opposite is true. You know, it's a recipe to not enjoy often when you really build up an idea about what something should be in your mind before going into it. My best explanation for that backlash is that, basically. (laughs) It's just such a shame because, you know, a character like Jar Jar, I think... Looking back now, I wasn't aware of it at the time because I was a kid myself, but it seems like a lot of the criticism was like, oh, he's just for kids. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't he be? You know, he's he's funny. He's harmless. I'm yeah. also, I'm quite protective of him at this point to the point where I'm like, oh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are quite mean to him for no real reason. They really yeah. are. <laughs> like, they they really do pick on him. Like, yeah. he... he helps them get back to where they need to go. You'd have thought they'd be a bit more appreciative. Um, Qui-Gon's a bit of a jerk. <laughs> oh, he is repeatedly. Like, I think you highlighted it, didn't you, Kirsty, about Qui-Gon like, um, being asked if he's there to free the slaves and he's like, nope. Yeah, it's, it's a bit <laughs> a bit icky, all of that stuff surrounding it, because it is like they end up taking Anakin, but leaving Shmi, and it's like, oh, if you'd really wanted to, you could have taken her, but I don't yeah. know, I guess Just that chop Watto's head off. <laughs> yeah. Paves the way for I'd, Anakin's I'd, angst later on. I'm sure uh, someone would have said, uh, oh no, if you do that, then they would have exploded her head or something like that. Um, <laughs> not how yeah, much... Yeah, no, uh... someone would come up for a reason why it couldn't happen. I think the sleaziest moment in the whole film for me might be when like Watto throws the chance cube and Qui-Gon uses the mind trick to make sure it lands on the right colour for Anakin. Like, and obviously, you know, you understand why he does that, but it's just a bit like, mm. <laughs> it's like so creepy. It's like he really wants to take this woman's kid. And yeah, I don't like that. He's also a bit of a jerk to Padme. Sorry, this is like the Qui-Gon bashing hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as a young girl relating to Padme and seeing this older man kind of like mansplain to her all the time, I was like, because she couldn't explain to him that she was the real queen, you know, she was yeah. just Padme the handmaiden. And she kept saying, well, the queen doesn't approve, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) He would just ignore her and do what he wanted. 
Yeah. I really enjoyed that dynamic because you can see Padme totally bristling at him. You know, yeah. and she's so desperate to say, I'm the queen. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously she can't. So yeah, like those are some of the highlights from my rewatch of The Phantom Menace 2. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we have a bunch of really cool listener emails. Um, so I'll read out the first one from TC. So hello, Rachel and Kirsty. I just wanted to share this interesting story of when I worked at a movie theatre in an outdoor mall in San Diego when The Phantom Menace came out. Yes, I'm that old. (laughs) And I think this shows how insane the anticipation was for this movie. Two months before The Phantom Menace came out, a guy showed up in front of our box office sitting in a recliner. We were all puzzled. Then he was there the next day too. And the next day, sitting in his recliner. At some point that week, the newspaper had an article about him. He was going to sit outside the movie theatre 24 hours a day, every day, until The Phantom Menace came out. After that, a restaurant in the mall started providing him free meals. Then a store gave him a television with a VCR, and he would watch only the original trilogy, all day, every day, for the rest of time. (laughs) Of course, he was first in line to buy tickets when he went on sale. But then it still had to wait six weeks before the movie came out. The store gave him a tent and camping stuff so that he wouldn't have to sit outside. It was San Diego, so the weather was fairly nice, but there may have been some rain. So he sat in his tent and only watched the original trilogy for six weeks. He was first in line for the first showing, back when you had to wait in line to get a good seat before seat selection was a thing. So he was one of the first people to see the movie on opening day. That's pretty awesome, if you ask me. It's awesome, but That's also commitment. slightly scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was bad having to wait overnight for celebration. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It puts it all into perspective, doesn't it? It's. I Honestly, I was so fascinated by this. I did a Google search and I tried to see if I could find like contemporary newspaper articles about this person. You know, because from this email, there clearly was some press coverage in local newspapers. Unfortunately, I could not. Um, but yeah, if anyone is familiar with press coverage about this person and this story, I would love to see it because, wow, I like I've just is the sort of thing where you've heard of this level of dedication in the abstract, but to actually have this sort of like tangible proof that this sort of thing really did happen, you know, and especially for that length of time. This is one thing to do it for like three days before the movie comes out, you know. But it's a completely different thing to do it for six weeks. <laughs> so And by yourself yeah. as well. Yeah, I know. I'm like, what was this guy's life? Did he have a job? Maybe not at that time. Maybe he quit to do this. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, he took a sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I hope he liked it. Yes. I mean, I hope he liked the food they were giving him. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask um, what the toilet situation was. Or oh the, no! Like, or the shower situation. It's like what? Let's not bring the tone of the podcast down, Rachel. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about this story way too much. Oh my goodness. Um. Okay. Cool. Um. Liam, could you read out the email from Kim, please? Two seconds. There it is. Uh, Yes, so this was from Kim. Uh, I remember the movie poster of young Anakin with the shadow of Darth Vader and how perfect I thought it was. It just seemed to encapsulate what I thought the movie could be. And buying tickets to the movie Wing Commander just so that I could see the trailer for The Phantom Menace. The cheering in the theatre when the Lucasfilm logo came up on screen. It was just a time when it seemed like everything was hope. 
yeah this is a lovely email and i've heard stories like that before about people going to see different movies purely so they could see the phantom menace trailer and yeah i guess that just underlines what a different time it was doesn't it because youtube wasn't a thing back then and obviously you could like download i think video clips from online you know but most people had dodgy dial-up connections that would god knows how long it would take to download a movie trailer back then you know so it makes sense that for a lot of people it would have just been more obvious and make more sense to go and see a different movie so you could see the trailer and yeah it's just fascinating you know because it's just a completely different form of movie going from what we have now Mm -hmm. i think i remember meet joe black which i haven't seen but it's a brad pitt movie i I remember that was very famously a movie that sold a lot of tickets because it had the phantom menace trailer (laughs) attached to it yeah they put it like 80 percent on opening night or opening weekend bought the tickets and then just left after the train (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's true but i'd love it if it was true i'm sure i've read that on imdb it could be someone winding everybody up but yeah yeah that story is familiar yeah even now we do have youtube there is that experience of watching the trailers on the big screen like i remember when the sequel trilogy ones were coming out and you're going to see movies at that time not necessarily because of it but it was still like oh a glimpse of star wars you know yeah i got a real thrill from it every time i saw that last jedi trailer oh magic (laughs) do you want me to read this next one uh yes please if you could read trisha's email that'd be great Hello, Kirsty and Rachel. I would just like to start this by saying I'm a huge fan of your show. I've been a follower of your podcast for almost five years now. Thank you so much for your analysis on various Star Wars topics. I was barely six years old when The Phantom Menace first came out in the summer of 1999. It was my first time going to a theatre to watch a movie. I remember my older brother and my father being so excited about a new Star Wars film coming out. My most treasured Star Wars-related memories was right after watching the movie. My brother and I couldn't stop talking about how cool the effects were, and discussed how the story will go on the next movie. I must confess, however, that at the beginning I was confused as to how The Phantom Menace was a Star Wars movie when I don't see Princess Leia or Luke or Han on screen. But I did enjoy the movie, so much so that my mother brought a bootleg copy of it to watch every day after school. The official DVD was hard to come by in our rural area. I was too young to be in fandom spaces during that time, and when discussing Star Wars with friends, I did feel left out most of the time for simply being the only girl in the group. It was because of that that my interest slowly moved towards Harry Potter, another huge franchise at the time, which I saw had a more inclusive fandom and was more acceptable for girls to like. I did continue watching the other films in the prequel era, but I just wasn't as invested as I was after seeing The Phantom Menace for the first time. I thought my love for Star Wars was slowly fading away until in 2009, ten years after The Phantom Menace was released, my brother had suddenly passed away. As a way to cope for this loss, I started diving into Star Wars again, watched the whole prequel series as well as the animated shows, wishing I could talk to him once more and tell him how much I appreciate the series now that I'm a bit older. More than 10 years since his death, I still wish we could discuss Star Wars as we used to when we were just children. I have to admit that I do have bittersweet memories when it comes to the prequel era of Star Wars. However, I'm always biased when it comes to The Phantom Menace. That film will always hold a special place in my heart. It never fails to bring me back to a more innocent and happier time in my life so far. Apologies if this letter's too long. I'm looking forward to hearing your discussion for the prequel series. Love to both of you and your listeners. Take care. Thank you, Trisha. That's wonderful. Oh, that's a really beautiful email. Thank you, Trisha. <laughs> Felt a little bit emotional listening to that. Yeah, um, I'm really sorry about your brother. Yeah, 
I'm really sorry too. Like, I think it really drives home, doesn't it? How these movie-going experiences, they're often about so much more than the movies themselves. It is about who you see the movies with and the emotions that you attach to that experience and the relationships that they make you think about. And yeah, it's really beautiful that The Phantom Menace can do that for you. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's it's quite strange. Uh, I have this discussion with a lot of people on my podcast, the power of film and sort of reading back and how she delved back into the film series that her and her brother were so attached to as a way, as a coping mechanism. It's it's always incredible to me how film can do that. So, yeah, it's uh, lovely to hear. And, um, yeah, I'm glad someone... <laughs> I'm glad she shared that story. It's beautiful. Me yeah. too. And it's so true how it's all tied up in your memories of specific times as well, right? Like, for us growing up as kids watching these, it's so different from people who were adults at the time watching it. Whether they enjoyed it or not, it's still, like such a formative time in your life that it it's kind of associated with certain memories in a way that they just aren't so much when you're a grown-up. Yeah, 100%. I think that's where a lot of the power of nostalgia comes from due to, you know, the things you experience and see when you're a kid. That They have this, like, unique power over you, <laughs> I think, in a way that as you go further into your life, things are usually less impactful. So... Yeah, it's really beautiful to hear about those personal relationships of the film. That whole notion of like not recognizing it as Star Wars because you don't see Leia, Luke, and Han, because mm. I I think that's kind of right because like you know Anakin does turn out to be their dad, but do you know about Padme yet? Was that the sense as this movie was coming out? Did people understand that they were going to be a romantic couple, or was it just way too early because? You know, it was it was Jake Lloyd Anakin. He was he was too young for that kind of thing, obviously. Like, was there a sense that the next film would be ten years later, or did people just have no clue? That's a really good question. That's actually something I want to research more um, and find out exactly what was known at the times. I feel like people did know that Padme was going to be like the mother of Luke and Leia very early, or at least the people in the know did. You know, the people who were like on fan discussion forums and reading the Star Wars magazines and stuff, you know, I think that it was known in those courses. Hmm. But I doubt the general audience knew. Right. I don't remember actively thinking about that at all. I just kind of took the films as they came. Yeah. So it must have been interesting for you to be like, okay, so this is Anakin, so where's the story going to go next? Like, yeah, I wondered if people would even, like, think that Padme would be in the next movie or what? It it was interesting that um, when it came to Palpatine, because I had a I had a book I think it was like the Essential Star Wars Characters Manual or something like that, and I remember seeing that the Emperor was called Palpatine uh, in that book, and then of course I saw Senator Palpatine. I was like, hang on a minute, <laughs> <laughs> like wow, I've cracked the code. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it it was sort of. Like, as a kid, yeah, like you said, you thought suddenly you had all this knowledge that, like, other people didn't know because I had this book and it told me. I was like, oh, he must be the bad guy. He must be the Emperor soon. At he some must point. be the Phantom Menace. Yeah. <laughs> Mind blown. blown. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. It's great. But, yeah, in, in terms of Padme... Um, 
when I watched the films, I I discovered through various pieces of media that I'd picked up that she was a lot younger in the film than was let on, I think. Um, so it sort of married up that maybe her and Anakin would, at the very least, become friends. Um, so <laughs> Very special friends. Yeah. Look, 12-year-old me was like not putting all the numbers together at the time. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was, um, yeah. I remember when my dad watched it, he thought, uh, Qui-Gon was, uh, going to make it through to the next film uh, oh. because he thought he was the one that trained Darth Vader. And I was like, no. And he said, oh, but I thought Obi-Wan would die. And I'm like, <laughs> what? No. <laughs> I was like, oh but he, he's in a new hope, dad. How would he die? <laughs> no, that's Ben Kenobi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's amazing wow wasn't Qui-Gon's death actually spoiled for some people in the soundtrack didn't they call it like Qui-Gon's noble end or something and that was (laughs) yes that did happen yeah (laughs) oh dear yeah and I think people were pissed off I'm sure it was leaked in other forms as well to be honest you know like Mm. again on these forums and stuff with the people who were like into all the spoilers um and yeah, I need to um, like look into that more because I'm fascinated by spoiler culture and I want to know who knew what when. So <laughs> yeah, that's something to come back to. Um, yeah, so the next email is from our friend Lava Castle on Twitter. Um, and they sent an email that covered all the different prequels, basically. So I've split their email up. So The Phantom Menace is the Star Wars film I have the most nostalgia for. Growing up in the 90s on the original trilogy and Legends, I was finally going to get to see a movie in the theatre. I was excited. One of my most fond memories is of going to Pizza Hut and seeing the display there of the tie-in toys themed after Coruscant. Taco Bell's Tatooine one also stood out, as was finding my first small figure, but all paled watching the movie. The sound of Sebulba's pod, the Trade Federation theme, Maul coming on screen. Phantom is the movie I don't give my thoughts on because all objectivity goes away when I think of those moments. It's impossible to extract being seven in that theatre and the feeling that washed over me. Anakin was me in a lot of ways, a child of a single mother who was taught that being kind was the greatest virtue. It hurt to see him leave Shimmy. I don't know if I would have turned out different from him in similar circumstances. Yeah, no, thank you for that email. That's like another example, I think, of that personal connection to these movies and these characters. And yeah, I think that bond between Anakin and Shimi, I think that's something that really stands out to me now that I'm watching it as an adult. Because Mm -hmm. as a kid, I didn't really relate to his circumstances, you know, because they're so extreme. There's nothing to say people can't relate to extreme circumstances you know and obviously many people did but I think as a grown-up watching it again with different eyes I can see that more like grounded human aspect of that relationship you know and just the sadness and the tragedy of a little boy being separated from his mother you know and how foundational that becomes to everything that happens subsequent to that so yeah I think that's like a real keystone of the prequels and really the saga as a whole it's a lot isn't it because as the child of a single parent and my best friend um having a single mom as well it did feel like a lot of the time to kind of see that depicted and in such a loving positive light as well because this might be taken for granted these days but that wasn't always the case you know there are a lot of stereotypes around single parents 
Um, and Shmi was so good and selfless and just wanted the best for her kid. It's really sad to see her having to let him go. Yeah. Um, that one sort of, I still feel a little bit uncomfortable watching, especially as I'm a parent now. And that's a situation that, you know, it, it sort of, you think different as a parent. And yeah, that just, oh, I don't know. It hit harder now. Um, but yeah, it's especially, um, not spoiling what's going to happen, obviously. Uh, hopefully we've all watched the prequels by now. But uh, <laughs> obviously, especially what happens to her in the second film. Um, and my opinions on how that was depicted as well uh, have drastically changed uh, over the last uh, viewing. Um, but yeah, it's... It's really, it's really strange because um, you're right. Having a, a single parent depicted on screen, um, it, it wasn't really often that the single parent was portrayed as anybody other than sort of almost like a failure. Um, mm. But whereas Shimi was quite a, I hate using the phrase strong character, but she was a strong character in her own way. The sort of uh, thing where Qui-Gon says to her, oh, who was his father? And she turns around, well, there was no father. I, I gave birth to him. I raised him. I've done all of this. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter. And that, to me, that is really quite powerful because it is just a defiant, well, no, he, he's not defined by who, you know, who his father is. He's defined by the love that I've given him. And that's the sun you see there. That is all my work. So, mm. you know. And uh, going back to Qui-Gon being a jerk, because I don't think he really comprehends. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about what the Phantom Menace does for your perception of the Jedi. It's quite complicated, isn't mm, it? It is. It is. But yeah, no, that's really great, guys. I really enjoyed that. and Lovely trip down memory lane. And yeah, thank you so much to everyone for those emails. It was so wonderful and... Yeah, it's really fantastic to get people's perspective on the movie who are not us. Because, yeah, we're only three people and obviously we're not in any way trying to present like an objective survey of how people felt about the prequels <laughs> because that's completely impossible and no. being completely objective about something like this isn't even interesting. So, yeah, it's just great to get like a wider range of responses to it. Um, okay, yeah, so let's move on to Attack of the Clones because I might be completely wrong and we'll find out but I feel like this discussion might be a little bit quicker than our Phantom Menace one and like that's not even a slight against Attack of the Clones it's just you know like Phantom Menace the hype to that movie was always going to be like on a completely different level from the hype of the films that followed mm. essentially you know so it was the first film after such a long break and I think a lot of people hadn't even expected there to be any more Star Wars movies. Again, it sounds so much like Force Awakens, even though I'm <laughs> saying this. Um, whereas with Attack of the Clones, obviously everyone knew that was coming and it was kind of inevitable to a certain extent. So there was still excitement, but it was in a very different way. And it was obviously filtered through like people's feelings about The Phantom Menace. And again, we were still kids when Attack of the Clones came out. So I think like for the most part our views on like the build-up to it won't be that affected by the cynicism that surrounded the phantom menace but yeah it was definitely in the soup if you will um so yeah my memories 
of the period surrounding the film's release and like awareness of hype and stuff honestly I just remember nothing like I've got to completely fess up it's like a complete blank in my mind I, I should probably stress that I have like a really rubbish memory just full stop and especially of my childhood but yeah really if I remember anything in terms of the backdrop to the film it was just there being much less hype than there was for The Phantom Menace. You know, there were certainly far fewer toys in the shops and stuff. It just wasn't as prominent. How about you, Kirsty? Yeah, I'd been kind of fixated on Fellowship of the Ring since that came out. And mm-hmm. I'd sort of forgotten about Star Wars. I knew there was a new movie coming out, but I, I, I don't think I watched any teasers or trailers before any of these movies came out. So I just went to see them when they were there and got into them after the fact, you know, Yeah. kind of took them as they came. So, yeah, I there must have been hype, as you say, but it, it wasn't with me. Like, I, I just went to see it when I did, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is why I'm glad that we have listener emails and things to pad it out, because, yeah, obviously people were excited and we don't want to, like act like there wasn't any excitement because there clearly was no and in hindsight i wish that i'd been part of it like just looking back and seeing what all the merch available was i wish that i'd had a padme doll with all the outfits you know yeah and like i look back at some of those fan sites you know that you can still find archived or sometimes even the original websites are still up through some miracle of the internet that and there were really cool sectors of fandom you know that i would have wanted to be part of you know there were like whole fan sites dedicated to padme and the handmaidens you know and like going into these lovingly detailed breakdowns of who each handmaiden was you know what her name was like what her personality was usually based on books and tie and stuff and yeah you know that's so cool and that's the sort of minutiae that would have really appealed to me but I just didn't know any of that was there this really dates us but I think a lot of it goes back to the status of the internet (laughs) and stuff and just how bloody like limited it was at that time you know it's like in 2001-2002 we just had a family computer with a dial-up connection still and you know like when I was going onto that computer I was probably just writing my My Little Pony fan fiction I, w- <laughs> I wasn't really going on to like Star Wars fan sites to be honest and usually I'd be booted off after half an hour which is probably why my My Little Pony Magnus Opus was never finished you know it, that availability of all that wider world of the fandom just wasn't there for me so yeah I had no idea it existed and that's why I'm very curious to find out more about it but yeah, how about you, Liam? What do you remember of that build-up? So, uh, yeah, Attack of the Clones, I agree with you, Cassie. I was very much in my Lord of the Rings phase at that point. Um, this was out around, I think the Two Towers was out at the same time, and I was really hyped for that. Um, I do remember there wasn't as much sort of merchandise being peddled about. There certainly wasn't the same level of the Phantom Menace. You weren't getting you know, your busts out of Kellogg's, or at least I don't remember there being any. Um, I do remember when I went to the cinema, uh, it was dead. You know, whereas previously you'd have lines for, you know, miles coming out of the cinema. When I went, it was it was essentially dead. It, it's also the middle film of a prequel, and I, I guess my own assumption was that... Uh, was that it was not going to be anything massively groundbreaking because there was still a film to come 
and uh, in in many ways, they, I was right in that assumption. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose when maybe that was the first inkling that people didn't really enjoy the Phantom Menace was that it wasn't like this all encompassing, taking up TV time, taking up pages and pages in newspaper pullouts and shops being adorned with. Um, Christopher Lee's face, I guess. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like a big part of how Attack of the Clones was marketed was about the love story. You know, if you go back and you watch the trailer, the love story is featured very prominently. There's that beautiful teaser poster where it's Anakin and Padme in profile and, you know, has the tagline about a Jedi must not blah, a Jedi must not blah, a Jedi must not love yes you know and then you look at them and it's obvious okay they're gonna fall in love and i feel like that's the right choice because that is a huge part of the movie you know the movie is very much about anakin and padme falling in love and that's really critical to the whole thing but i feel like that marketing as well probably turned off a lot of people where they probably felt okay skipping that one because they were like "Uh, i don't need to see young darth vader fall in love i want to see when anakin turns into vader you know which was obviously revenge of the sith Man, who wouldn't want to see Darth Vader fall in love? I know, right? <laughs> well, you say that, but it is kind of a missed opportunity. Um, <laughs> okay, like, you've got to explain this. Like, Liam, we love love on this podcast. We want to hear a counter perspective. Yeah, no, um, to to me, because obviously I've watched all three of these prior to this episode, and I've taken this really seriously. Um, oh. I feel like Attack of the Clones is this film that had so much potential, and they just completely dropped it. Um, mm. And to me, Anakin's character falling in love, um, the one thing I feel that they missed was the fact that he's gone to be a Jedi, and it's essentially with his mother's blessing. Um, so he wants to become a Jedi. It was his dream, and uh, he's going to, you know, show his mum, and he's going to go back, and he's going to, you know, find her again, and all this, that, and the other. Um, and I feel like that if he's suddenly doing all these things that a Jedi doesn't do, you know, the feeling fear, falling in love, things like that, it's sort of going against everything that he promised his mum. And I feel like that's what they maybe should have focused on. So they. You know, having them fall in love is great because that is then sort of a counteract to what he thinks he should be. And then maybe that's when he will start to question whether being a Jedi is truly right. And that is what Mm -hmm. then leads him to sort of be swayed to the dark side because they don't care. Um, Or at least it's not really implicit. Um, So to me, I think that, yeah, it could have worked. And if it was marketed and written better, then maybe people would have seen it and wouldn't have minded this love story being the centre of a story about Jedi, essentially. Um, but that's that's my two pennies on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know but, yeah. you have a lot of feelings about the love story in Attack of the Clones, Kirsty, because I know you really enjoyed that when you saw it, like when it was out in cinemas. So yeah, what is your response to that? No, the thing is, it's really interesting to think about now because it's like the the prequels are already, in my mind at least, maybe it's different for everyone, they're so embedded in, well, this is just the story of Star Wars that it's actually quite hard to tease out the different choices that they made and like look at it objectively as like, well, that could have actually been different and maybe it would have been better this way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
because I, I definitely don't look at Attack of the Clones and think this is a perfect movie. Sure, yeah. It's like it is what it is, so I'll, I'll enjoy it for what it is. But I do think, like Liam, that they could have done things with Anakin's arc in a much more interesting way that, like, had the character motivations maybe fit a bit more and, like, facilitate the downfall into Vader. Because as it is, especially as you go into Revenge of the Sith, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, it does start to feel a bit rushed. Yeah. Um, and it, it's complicated because with the stuff, you know, you see him obviously making mistakes but around, like, killing all the Tusken Raiders and everything, but um, there's just something about the way it's depicted sometimes that is a bit like, mm, maybe that could have been done a little differently. Yeah. No, 100%. I personally, like, have lots of issues with the Attack of the Clones, to put it diplomatically. Um, and, yeah, like, to be honest, it's more worthwhile to quickly discuss my current feelings about the film rather than my feelings about it when it came out so I honestly don't really remember how I felt about it when it came out but yeah like I feel like the romance stuff in that movie is the most interesting part of it because it's clearly not completely successful you know at least not in the way that George intended I think because I do think he was earnest for the most part in what he was trying to do with that love story. You know, he was incredibly it to be, earnest. Yeah, it's too earnest, perhaps. <laughs> um, and yeah, like he really wanted it to be this like grand love story for the ages type thing, you know, and it obviously falls down a bit because of some of the silliness. But, you know, when I'm trying to be forgiven towards it, I think a lot of the awkwardness between like Anakin and Padme, a lot of that is meant to be there, you know, and the film is completely unself-aware of that you know like there's some knowledge of the fact that you're meant to be a bit unsettled by the way Anakin is with Padme but yeah there's other parts where you're definitely just meant to take it at face value and you just can't <laughs> with a straight face um but yeah I still find it all kind of charming you know and it's beautiful people and beautiful locations so I can always enjoy that on a superficial level yeah, I mean, like, the floating of the pair. It's just so silly <laughs> and cute. <laughs> Have you seen that someone's actually done, like, a um, pin badge like of that scene with, like, a little lever on it so you can move <gasps> the pair across between them? Wow. Amazing. I need to send you a link to it, Kirsty. I think you'll die. Um, but, yeah, it's just a thing of beauty. Yeah. So there's elements of Attack of the Clones that are a bit of a hot mess, but I agree with you that it's the the love story that's really at the core because I feel quite bad for Obi-Wan Kenobi in a way because he gets a bit of a short straw with this movie mm, all, all, yeah. all the Clone Wars stuff I mean I'm not saying that like Boba and Jango is bad but compared to the love story it's not quite so engaging yeah same like I feel like Obi-Wan is just like sh shuffled off on a side quest basically so they the have to get movie. him out of the way yeah it's, it's awkward isn't it <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine if everything was the same in Attack of the Clones, but Obi Wan was there for all the courtship scenes, <laughs> just like hovering in the background? <laughs> You'd be like, "Stop cock blocking me, dude!" <laughs> oh no, it'd be unbearable. Just, just seeing Obi Wan whacking Anakin on the head, going, "No, go to horny jail or whatever." <laughs> no. Yeah, I am right that you really liked um, the love story, even like when you first saw it as a kid, right, Kirsty? Oh yeah. Yeah. Me and my friends we we were all like in our little Annie Dollar appreciating bubble. Nice. That was actually the first time I owned a piece of Star Wars merch. I can't even call it merch. It was a notebook with Anakin and Padme on it. Oh, but that's was... so nice. Do you still have it? No. 
No, but I remember I remember using it at school and everyone was like, oh, so do you not like Lord of the Rings anymore? Is this your new thing? I was like, no, I, I like both. <laughs> That's really you know, when you're a kid, life. you have to have like one thing. Yeah. <laughs> sure, it kind of blows people's minds if you have more than one sincere interest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just loved, I loved Anakin and Padme and I loved all of her outfits. And oh God, yes. Yeah, just the, the costumes in the prequels are amazing. Yeah, I think that's like one of my contemporary memories of, you know, watching Attack of the Clones and how I related to it. Because there was this amazing site and I need to find out what it was called. I think it was quite a famous site at the time. But it was basically just this very detailed inventory of Padme's wardrobe. And each outfit had like its own separate entry on the website. And there was like a separate gallery for each outfit that had pictures of different cosplayers who'd made that particular dress and oh it was just the best site you know you could look at it for hours and I just loved it you know because I think I was very heavily into aesthetics at that time you know and I just liked beautiful things and all the costumes in the prequels were amazing there's a beautiful book actually on the costumes of Star Wars that has really gorgeous like full page colour spreads on Padme's dresses and I would give anything to have that book but it's really hard to come by so yeah that's very sad for me yeah i just remember being wowed that like every time you saw her she was in something different yeah exactly and what was your favorite dress actually kirsty oh. i know that's like a really superficial question but I'm genuinely oh yeah that's actually i i don't know if i can answer that honestly <laughs> there's so many good ones I feel like it's got to be like, you know, there's like the really light rainbow colored one when Anakin and her are sort of like on the balcony by the lake. Oh, and yeah. I think the they kiss for the first of, time. Yeah. Ugh, I just, yeah, I can't. Something about that tie dye effect as well. I think she looked great in the picnic scene. Yeah. Um, because they give her the kind of like the layer buns there as well. And there's oh, the other one where she's kind of wearing a headdress where he does his whole like compassion speech. It's all, mm, she's kind of yeah. in like a yellowy orange color yes yeah she, I, I but i can't pick one she looks great all the time yeah exactly <laughs> don't really i won't ask you what your favorite dress was well okay. i can't i couldn't answer i do appreciate like the costume design and production design of all the prequels sure. they are really really great yeah, um, yeah so you know there's no hate from me on that but yeah it's not kudos not to a... trisha bigger yeah basically the mastermind yeah um but yeah so what was your opinion of attack of the clones at the time Liam, right. when you so first saw it. I remember taking my brother to see this, um, who was five years younger than me. And of course, the bit we remember quite fondly is Flippy Yoda uh, <laughs> at the end. Um, because, you know, <laughs> everyone loves Flippy Yoda, and I will not take any questions as to why I love Flippy Yoda. Um, but uh, I remember sort of the juvenile humour in me really enjoying that. I really enjoyed the sort of climactic battle at the end. And um, I, I just adore Christopher Lee. Um, mm. I wasn't aware he was in the film because oh, wow. sort of even in the build-up, I wasn't that aware of his character. So when he came on screen, I was like, oh, it's, it's Saruman. It's, it's Saruman. <laughs> <laughs> he's collected uh, all the major franchises. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's going for it. He's absolutely going for it. I quite enjoyed it the first time I watched it and my dislike of the film has only really occurred because of rewatches. I felt like if this was the only time I watched Attack of the Clones I would think 
more highly of it, but it's not. And yeah, it is that whole missed potential thing. And I think when I was rewatching it as a teen, I didn't rewatch it as much as The Phantom Menace because it almost felt like a slog to get to the bits that I really liked. Um, Because I wasn't wholly into the love story. Coming back as a much older person, I can appreciate what they were trying to do. But it just sort of... I'm not a massive fan of George's writing, unfortunately. I I think that's fair. Yeah, it's... it's, I can see why Carrie just absolutely ripped his thing to shreds. Um, It's like, no, this is what we're saying, George. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think Carrie had very helpful targeted feedback, let's put it that way. Bless It's hard, though, because I think you're right on some level, Rachel, that it's meant to be awkward. Like, the degree to which... George was writing that in a self-aware way. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. But that's kind of part of the fun of watching it now. It's like, what's the intent here? Like, And how does this all play into Anakin's eventual downfall? Because it is so earnest, so serious. They're so dramatic. Uh, it is. It is kind of endearing, really. <laughs> Even if it's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And I think... It's also nice to think about how completely singular, you know, that romance is in that type of film, particularly from that time period. You know, like, it's no wonder people were like, what even is this? (laughs) You know, when they saw it, because it is this, like, quasi-Shakespearean, like, love forbidden love story, you know. And I think if you asked people who only had the original trilogy and The Phantom Menace to go on, what they associated with Star Wars, they wouldn't have said that, you know? Mm. And I do really appreciate Attack of the Clones for bringing that, like, level of operatic intensity to it all, you know? Because regardless of the execution, and I, I think it absolutely could have been executed much better than it was, I just love that flavour, you know? And I think it's a very important ingredient of Star Wars. So, yeah, regardless of any reservations I might have about it, I'm very glad Attack of the Clones exists. Me too. And looking back, it's part of why I was so confused coming into the sequel trilogy era of fandom that people were acting like, you know, the notion of a central romance between the characters was so ludicrous. So I was like, Mm. we already have that as a pretty central theme in Star Wars. Yeah. (laughs) You know, George never shied away from that. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely not something to be brushed under the carpet. It's literally front and centre from 2002 onwards. And obviously, even in the original trilogy, Han and Leia are a hugely important romance in those films too. I think it's just with Anakin and Padme, it takes on extra importance because that relationship and the forbidden quality of it, that ultimately becomes the engine of like the A-plot in the prequels, essentially. Whereas Han and Leia falling in love, that's a crucial aspect of the plot in Empire. But by the time you get to Return of the Jedi, like it's cute and it's still there, you know, they're still in love. But it's very much a side thing, you know. Whereas in Revenge of the Sith, that arc with Anakin and his fear of losing Padme, that doesn't work if you don't have Attack of the Clones and what that sets up. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about how Attack of the Clones ends with that like fairy tale secret wedding scene. Mm. And then like speculating with your friends as to okay so how do they get from that to Darth Vader what happens and I was getting kind of worried for Padme yeah very justifiably <laughs> like she, as it turned out 
I was like, I don't quite know how this is going to go, but I guess that was part of the fun. Yeah, something I really want to do and I'm really looking forward to doing before the next episode is reading fan speculation about what would happen to Padme after they saw Attack of the Clones. You know, because there were lots of theories that she was lived with Leia, you know, for a long time during Leia's childhood. And that explains why Leia had memories of her, you know, like maybe she died when Leia was a young girl. Um, so yeah, I want to see like what the theorising was along those lines. And yeah, hopefully I'll find stuff out. Do you remember theorising about that, Liam? Um, not so much. Um, I, I was of the opinion that maybe... Because I do remember that line of Leia remembering her mother. And that is the one thing I remember from Revenge of the Sith going, hang on a minute, how's that work then? Mm. Um, so... But uh, we'll, we'll pass on to that in a bit. But I, I do remember there was a little bit of speculation, but I think my focus was more on how Anakin became Vader rather than what happened to Padme, as sad as that sounds. Um, but I think because I was such a big Darth Vader fan, that was my main focus. Um, and yeah, I never really got into like the Clone Wars, so that bit wasn't really what I was looking to I was looking to okay well what is what's going to happen how's he going to become Vader and you know how's he going to hide you know, the, the fact that he's married because you know Jedi's aren't allowed to do that and it sort of sort of glosses it over <laughs> next <time. laughs> did it occur to you that it might have anything to do with Padme when you were thinking about it or were you just focusing it on it from other angles basically? um I I felt like that maybe she would be involved, but I thought essentially that she was going to be fridged and that's what would make him angry. Right, okay. Do you want to explain what fridged means? Oh, yeah, so, sorry. Uh, so, um, to those that don't know what fridged means, it is when a uh, woman character is killed off in order for the, the male character to then have a purpose for the rest of the film or TV series. So you'll often see it like the main character's wife is killed by the bad guy, and then he's going after the bad guy to get revenge. And uh, there's no point to having that character other than to be killed off, so they're fridged, right, um, yeah. which is reference to them going to a morgue and stuff like that. So... I thought yeah. that that's what would happen to Padme. It's not entirely untrue. Yeah, it's not yeah. entirely untrue. She plays uh, a much more minimal role in the next film. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, we will indeed. Um, okay, cool. So that means it's email time. Um, could you read out the email we got from Stiz, please? So this is from Stiz. I don't have anything cool or insightful, but it's how I was introduced to Star Wars. I watched Attack of the Clones and my life changed. I quickly rented the others every other weekend because back then it was expensive to rent lol. And it was, I agree. Um, and here's a funny one. My high school crew weren't exactly popular, but I ended up having a locker next to one of the popular kids and we became friends. He eventually invited me and my friends to a local party and I can still see the look on his face when I told him I couldn't go because Revenge of the Sith was out and I had tickets. <laughs> That's amazing. One of my favourite memories. I absolutely love Revenge of the Sith and it's my favourite of the nine, followed by The Last Jedi. Ooh, a connoisseur. I love it. 
Yeah, no, that's really cool. I love those memories. And I think that's awesome, isn't it? So it just reminds us that like every Star Wars movie is someone's first Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's wild that someone would come into it at the point of Attack of the Clones. But in a way, it does make sense because obviously there's this huge time jump between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And like obviously the characterization of Anakin is informed by what happened to him as a boy in The Phantom Menace. But I feel like you can catch up on a lot of that background through the dialogue, you know, and what's discussed between Anakin and Padme. So, yeah, I could see that working. And I think that's awesome that it inspired Stiz to go off and watch all the rest. So, very cool. And to turn down the popular kid, obviously. (laughs) That is is quality gold. You'd find that in a comedy (laughs) these days, wouldn't you? Yeah, it takes fortitude, I think, which I appreciate. Strength of character. That's a good point, though, about it feeling quite different, like that time jump, because watching uh, The Phantom Menace this week, I didn't have time to do Attack of the Clones, unfortunately, but I think I will this week. But they are quite different, aren't they? Like, I I think of them as the prequel trilogy, but um, as I was watching it, I was like, wait, is this is this my favourite of the prequels? So I've always associated, like, the the romance with my favourite part of the prequels. But now I'm like, wait, what? Maybe I prefer The Phantom Menace, but it feels completely different because Anakin is just in a completely different stage of his life. Mm. And the Jedi are so different as well without Qui-Gon. It's almost like they really lose their way after he's gone. Yeah. So, yeah, you could come in at Attack of the Clones and that'd be just a completely different entry point. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like Phantom Menace does recontextualize a lot of what you see in Attack of the Clones. Like, for example, knowing that Obi-Wan was so reluctant to be Anakin's teacher in the first place. Yeah. So I think that really does colour their interactions in a different light. So I, I do think Obi-Wan like, is a good master, you know, and he tries his absolute hardest with Anakin. But I do feel like, to an extent, Anakin wouldn't have gone down the path he went down if Qui-Gon had stayed alive and been able to train him rather than Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan was so, so young, young himself. <laughs> Snap! Sorry. <laughs> No, I love it when that happens. He was, though. He was a baby. He was. Although, then again, in the High Republic books, we've seen, like, a 16-year-old become a Jedi Knight. <laughs> Obi-Wan was definitely older than 16 when he was still a Padawan, but I'm just being mean now. Like, everyone has their own pace. It's all cool. And he was still a baby and still young. Yeah. You get the sense that he grows up a lot between those two movies, because he has to, because he's looking after Anakin now. Exactly, yeah. And again, he feels like almost a different person. He's still recognisable as himself, but yeah, he's undergone a lot of change in that time period. Um. Okay, cool. Then could you read out the email from Lava Castle, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Attack of the Clones was, along with TLJ, perhaps the Star Wars film I was most hyped for, which began when I saw a young Boba Fett toy at an EB Games. As a kid, my favourite toys were Vader and Boba, and Godzilla, though that's a whole other thing. Boba was the epitome of cool, and the thought of seeing his origins was enough to sell me on the movie then and there. Not all memories are pleasant, though, and one of the employees there couldn't hide his disgust at ten-year-old me beaming with joy. The other was much kinder as he rolled his eyes and told the man to chill out. I was thankfully spared much interaction from the prequel hate crowd outside of this. The poster of Anakin and Padme increased this hype, not afraid to admit that even as a kid I had a soft spot for romance, and couldn't wait to see how it unfolded. I have less nostalgia for Attack, I loved it, though. Highlights were Obi-Wan's fight with Jango, who I still think has the coolest Mando armour, and the Battle of Geonosis. On a more emotional note, Attack is the only Star Wars I full-on cried during. 
tears welled up at some point and all as Anakin held Shmi's body and she strained to say I love you it's tough to even type it yeah that part is really sad isn't it yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, that's what I was sort of referring to earlier with missed opportunity because it's absolutely right that Anakin has that reaction you know his mum's just died and he's like right I'm gonna kill all of you and the aftermath bit I think that's the bit where he comes across almost like a whiny teenager. I'm like, no, no, that's that's exactly where you've missed. Um, because it, he's gone to Padme and he's done this terrible thing and she's essentially saying, look, you're not a, a bad person. And I think that's where, that's where his character should have developed a bit more. Um, because he's got, he's then going to have this guilt that he's, he's done this terrible thing. And he's like, oh god, no, I've, I've done this, and uh, it's everything that's gone against what I told my mum I would do. But they killed her, and uh, it, it was just like, oh, because it was such an incredible scene beforehand where he finds her, and then she's taken from him so quickly, and it's it is genuinely heartbreaking. I agree with Lava Castle there, and I just think the aftermath of it could have been done a hell of a lot better. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that my rant over, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I think I enjoy the Boba and Jango Fett stuff a lot more now. I think at the time it barely registered for me. Like, I'm not even sure, and this is embarrassing, I'm not even sure I fully grasped that Boba was the same person from the original trilogy. Yeah, I think I you was know? the same, Kirsty. <laughs> you know, I think because... It's not like Boba ever had a face in the originals. You know, it was right. just the armor. Uh, I think part of me was confused and thought that Django was Boba Fett, you know, and like obviously he was calling the little boy Boba. So <laughs> <laughs> hopefully at some level it registered, but it didn't register entirely. And yeah, I think for me that I feel like it happens in every prequel almost, but you know, that there was that confusion between like, who's Padme? Who's Amidala? Who's Sabe? You know, mm. and like my head exploded with the confusion between like all the different identities. And in Attack of the Clone, that progressed to confusion over like Boba Fett, Django Fett. Whoa, I don't know. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was just too much for my tiny mind. And for some people, it might have been like the main focus of it was, wow, we're finally going to get to see what the Clone Wars was about that Obi-Wan alluded to in The New Hope. For me, it was just all about Anakin and Padme. That stuff was like... That stuff I can appreciate now. Now I'm kind of more aware of the context of the larger Star Wars story. But at the time, it was kind of icing on the cake, you know? Yeah. No, very much so. Um, Yeah, I've just remembered that there's quite a famous YouTube clip of Ewan McGregor attending a movie premiere. I think for a different film that he starred in. And being told the title of episode two because he didn't know. <laughs> they, they say, oh, did you know the title of episode two has just been announced? And he says, no, what is it? You know, and he sounds genuinely like interested, like he truly has no idea. And then the report is like, Attack of the Clones. And Ewan McGregor just sniggers. <laughs> he clearly finds it very funny. <laughs> um, because, yeah, like it's a very clumsy title, I think, to be generous. But... I don't oh, know, I it's like weird. It. Like, at this point, I just completely accept it. You know, I don't think twice. It doesn't feel awkward. It's just that is the name of Star Wars Episode Two. But yeah, I can see why it felt strange at the time. I like how pulpy it feels. I guess Phantom yeah. Menace is like that too. Yeah, definitely. I feel like they're both 
kind of awkward, but in a way that works for Stoles because Stoles is kind of like awkward and nerdy and yeah, I like it. Ewan should have been happy that it kind of referred to his side of the story. Yes, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, what would a like title for episode two that reflected the romance even be? Oh, something angsty. Yeah. The darkness of passion. <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars episode two, the darkness of <laughs> Sorry, oh, I'm dear. amusing myself way too much. Um, okay, yeah, but I think that's everything for Attack of the Clones. Are you guys all done? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, cool. So let's move into Revenge of the Sith. So yeah, I feel like with this one, I kind of get my memory back much more. <laughs> and I don't know, I guess I was that much older, you know. Um, so it makes sense that I would have clearer memories. Um, but yeah, I feel like at this point I was old enough to be somewhat aware of the reaction to the previous two movies. And to have known that there was like this general atmosphere of disappointment surrounding them. You know, that they hadn't like lived up to what people wanted necessarily from a Star Wars movie. And yeah, my big memory of that run-up period to Revenge of the Sith was it very much being marketed as this is the film everyone wants to see. You know, this is the film where Anakin becomes Vader. And Vader was really prominent in the marketing for Revenge of the Sith from the very first teaser poster for the film. And yeah, I think that makes sense because I do think that was the angle that got people like my dad even interested in the film. You know, because he didn't care to see Darth Vader as a little boy or Darth Vader falling in love, you know. But there was some level of interest in seeing Anakin become Darth Vader, you know, and how that all went down. Um, And yeah, I just feel like it wasn't at the Phantom Menace levels again, you know, because that's just a ridiculous level of hype. But there was much more excitement for Revenge of the Sith than for the previous film. How about you, Kirsty? What do you remember? Um, I definitely went into it curious as to how they'd depict Anakin's descent into the dark side. But again, in terms of like the marketing and the trailers and that, I just didn't, I don't remember seeing them. Mm. Um, So personally, I was invested in the story, but not to the extent of like paying attention to the stuff surrounding it, which just seems so bizarre to me now. But again, I guess it was a different time. It wasn't as online. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Of course. How about you, Liam? Yeah, I remember this one quite vividly. Um, in particular, like the TV spots were quite heavily prominent on Obi-Wan and Anakin's fight on the lava planet, whose name completely has gone Mustafa. from my head. That's it, Mustafa. Uh, the fight on Mustafa was like really prominent and how like the Jedi were going to fall and the Emperor was going to rise and things like that. And it, you know, I was at that angsty emo stage, so I, I was lapping all of this up, and there was definitely much more of a hype amongst my college friends. Um, I do remember that I was also a bit more aware of the controversy that the previous two films were rubbish. Um, almost they were like, oh no, Revenge of the Sith will be great, these other two were like nonsense sort of thing, and I was much more impressionable to that. So for years, I I almost saw them as the bottom-rung Star Wars films. The other four were the only ones, really, that you could watch. And, you know, that irritates me, looking back. Because, you know, the other two films were perfectly fine. 
apart from Attack of the Clones. Um, but <laughs> uh, no, I kid. There are some good bits in every film. Uh, but yeah, I just I remember someone in my college class went to see it four times because they loved it that much, and there was a bit more sort of hype. And like you said, Vader was quite prominent, so that that piqued my interest. But yeah, I re- I think I also remember the reviews were quite kind towards it, whereas they started dunking on the other two, and they were like, "Oh, this film is much better because it gives them much more meatier dialogue to go with, and the action scenes are incredible, which they are." But yeah, it was also considered the best of the new three constantly. So, although I may not believe that now. Hmm. Yeah, that's been kind of the narrative since almost, hasn't it? That, oh, well, you know, the prequels might be a mixed bag for you, but Revenge of the Sith is definitely the best of the three. And watching them again recently, I'm like, I'm not sure if that's true anymore, but I guess it's hard to rank all of the films objectively. Yeah. I don't know why. I think it maybe is because of the Vader stuff. If people feel like it ties more organically into the original trilogy, but in terms of standing on its own, that's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah, I do feel like to an extent... Like, and I don't think it's like a one for one by any means. But I think the appeal of Revenge of the Sith is kind of in the same arena as the appeal of that hallway scene in Rogue One. You know, it's this sense of very close continuity to the original trilogy, you know, which obviously has this like overwhelming aura of positivity surrounding it. And it's also the story where perhaps people are most fascinated by that you know so i think the closer you get to the events of the originals and the more closely you tie into those events i think generally the more engaged people are and that's not the case for everyone you know and people approach these films in all sorts of different ways but i think that does very much color the perception of revenge of the sith and why it is perceived to be so great in many courses because I think for a lot of people that was a burning question, you know, how did Anakin become Darth Vader? And like how did everything go wrong between Obi Wan and Vader? Because that's obviously been a plot point that's on the table since the very first Star Wars in nineteen seventy seven. So it's a p- question that's been percolating for decades by the time Revenge of the Sith comes out. And yeah, I think it was just scratching an itch that people had. Yeah. There was this like almost ominous feeling going into this movie because you knew that it couldn't end well. (laughs) And because the last movie had ended on, you know, arguably in a a high for Anakin and Padme, like getting married and being happy together. And it was just like, oh, God, something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) And being quite shocked, like watching it and even now watching it, being quite surprised at how... You, you are literally watching him being burned alive. You know, it's quite graphic. It really is. Yeah. I think this this was the first one that received a 12 rating, I think, because of the mm-hmm. violence in the film. Um, and I'm not referring to the... Well, I'm sort of also referring to the scene with the younglings as well, sort of the implied murder of a bunch of children. Um, yeah. But yeah, that scene where he's Master Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, well, you're gonna die, kid. <laughs> I remember thinking that in the cinema, like, thinking, oh god, you're gonna die. Uh, 
<laughs> have you guys seen that the kid who played that child in Revenge of the Sith, they're obviously now like a young adult and they're like really like capitalising on it. You know, I've seen them do like a few interviews and stuff. Good for them. Yeah. And, well, why wouldn't yeah, you? I'm really glad for them too. It's like, yeah, you milk that little kid. <laughs> and they also see like, you know, it's obviously it's become like a meme at this point because I feel like every frame of the prequels has become a meme, <laughs> you know, because yeah, internet. Um, and yeah, it's nice to see someone like really like take glee in that because I think for a lot of the people involved with the prequels, it obviously stings a bit, you know, because there was so much like drama and unpleasantness surrounding them. And yeah, it's good to see like that narrative being changed, I think, as the people who saw the prequels as kids grow up and are airing their appreciation for those films online. Yeah, I think it was around Revenge of the Sith's time that I was starting to become because I, mean, I, I was older myself starting to become more aware of like the negative reactions towards Aiden's performance I thought they were a bit mean um, because Anakin is such a a strangely written character in, in a lot of ways really isn't he because yeah. George really did go all in on that like almost period drama feel so there is this like formality to the dialogue and George is also famous for not giving his actors a ton of helpful direction. So Hayden was probably, you know, between a rock and a hard place there. Yeah, exactly. I remember, um, this is very superficial, but I remember not finding Hayden, like, attractive at all in Attack of the Clones. And feel free to laugh at me, guys, so no being ridiculous. But I remember thinking it was a massive upgrade for Hayden from Attack of the Clones to Revenge of the Sith. I think there were a lot of people like what's with the padawan braid that's not a good yeah, look exactly it's very dorky looking i think and yeah I- i've always had a love for free flowing locks so yeah the longer hair it's just wah, chef's kiss it does feel more byronic which is kind of fitting for that moment in his arc exactly and it makes for much better parallels with kylo moments in the sequels so yeah i love it for that um <laughs> But yeah, so seeing this movie in the cinemas, I did not, as is a theme of all the prequels, I just didn't <laughs> see it in the cinemas. I was still dependent on my parents, okay? I still could not drive. I had no, well, I still can't drive as a grown-ass woman. But yeah, like I had no way of getting to the cinema on my own. And yeah, trips to the cinema just weren't happen- happening, basically. Um, so yeah, I'm very jealous of you guys for getting to see it. Especially because there haven't really been re-releases of the prequels. You know, I know they did The Phantom Menace in 3D about 10 years ago. But they haven't really re-released the other two. And when there are Star Wars retrospectives, it's usually all about the originals. You know, so I've seen the originals in cinemas several times. But with the prequels, it's just like those opportunities don't come up. And I wish they would, because I'd love to experience them that way. And yeah, I have envy for people who did. But yeah, I really enjoyed Revenge of the Sith when it came out on DVD. I remember watching it quite a lot in the next few years. You know, like I remember watching it in the first year of uni. Um, and it being well received, you know, everyone enjoying it and finding a lot to discuss and appreciate in it, which was really cool. Um, and yeah, I guess my main disappointment with it was just how minimal Padme's role was. Because if anything stood out to me in the previous two movies, it was Padme. And I really appreciated how she was framed. You know, she was very much given her own story and her own 
narrative in both films. And obviously in Attack of the Clones it's mostly about the romance, but she's still very much her own person with her like senatorial career and her own preoccupations and concerns. Whereas in Revenge of the Sith, it's like she only exists relative to Anakin. And yeah, it was a bit of a shame to see her reduced a bit like that, even though you can understand why that choice was made creatively, I guess. So yeah, like I enjoyed the film, but I did have that disappointment over seeing like my heroine basically brushed aside and just used to further Anakin's story. So yeah, that was my main impression, I think, at the time. Yeah, I think I felt quite similar. Um, I don't know if I would I properly articulated it at the time. I feel like it was just like this under the surface feeling that like when you look back from the Phantom Menace onward, it's like quite surprising that in the end she's not given as much agency. And she like once she's pregnant, that's kind of her purpose, you know, she's Luke and Leia's mom. Um and it's it's kind of a shame that she doesn't really totally fulfil her potential as a character in her own right by the end especially when you look back at the ideas that george had for her character in revenge of the sith that he then chose not to go with oh yeah there's um, some like, deleted that amazing scenes. concept art isn't there oh it looks so awesome yeah and like even the deleted scenes they got to the point where they were filming her like forming the initial rebellion with yeah. on mothma and bail and it's like oh it would have it probably would have made quite a big difference to keep that in but yeah Oh well. <laughs> and it is frustrating, like you say, it's just small moments, but they would have made a big difference. And yeah, it's a pity. Like, so I guess, yeah, there probably wasn't that consciousness of how much that character meant to people, especially like female viewers. Mm. And yeah, it's a shame like that that story was left untold, essentially. I mean, even to, yeah. even to me, it was quite disappointing because... I always saw Padme as this character that was very proactive and mm. she was able to hold her own. Like she was constantly in the gunfights in Phantom Menace and was also constantly in the gunfights in Attack of the Clones, especially the, the final scene. Um, so to see her, essentially, I, I refer to her in the notes as a lampshade character because you could replace her with a lampshade and it would be no different. She, it's like her character almost offers nothing but to just be there, have this moment, and then disappear again. And it's it's really frustrating. And I remember being frustrated when I watched the film the first time, um, because you know I I grew up with a lot of um, women role models and things like that, and to see someone in a series that I did enjoy be sort of frittered away into almost a, a nothing character is immensely frustrating um and i feel like a lot more prominence was given to characters like general grievous and uh anakin obi-wan mace windu that it was almost like padme there wasn't room for padme when in reality she was probably the, one of the more important characters and yeah that's i remember watching the film and that was a bit i didn't enjoy so um yeah it's it's interesting we all have the same feelings here <laughs> yeah no i think that's very fair like i know a lot of people really like general grievous and like his whole thing about, I, don't. I mean i like him i i yeah. don't 
was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, but like I would happily remove Gerald Grievous from the film, and I would feel like nothing of value had been lost. <laughs> and obviously, I wouldn't do that because I know lots of people love that. And obviously, I don't have the power to do that. So, <laughs> I mean, I I see what you're saying. I just enjoy him because he's there. But yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, I can appreciate it on a certain level, you know, just due to, like, it's a cool character design, and, like, I also kind of love the whole ridiculousness of, like, Groove's just whole thing that <laughs> he has going on. It's just absurd. But yeah, I feel like everything with Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith, up to the point when Order 66 is happening, I feel it's kind of worthless for me. I feel bad for Obi-Wan because he's such an important character and yet it didn't occur to me until quite recently that both of these movies he's just kind of shunted to the side and then yeah, yeah obviously at the end comes back more into play into the main story but oh, maybe that's something that they'll address with the future Kenobi series. <laughs> and honestly even in Phantom Menace re-watching that yesterday I was shocked by how little Obi-Wan was in it you know like yeah. I Part of me had forgotten how he is literally just left on the ship to I know. go to Tatooine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, wow, he really just does nothing. The only thing of substance he does is like check Anakin's midichlorian count. And then complain about <laughs> the Queen's like, wardrobe. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That is literally it. The only thing he has to offer is snark. <laughs> <laughs> Which he's very good at. But... Yes, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so Obi- um, Ewan does great with what he's given, but yeah, there's a reason to look forward to the Obi-Wan series. Okay, um, right. So, I will read out the first email that we have about Revenge of the Sith from Noah. When Revenge of the Sith came out, it felt like Star Wars was inescapable. It was really the moment as a kid that I realised it was this super popular franchise, and not just some set of movies I happened to like. I remember when the final trailer aired on Fox before an episode of the OC and being so hyped up afterwards that I ran around my room several times, lightsaber in hand. During the last month or so before release, I would always keep my eye out while watching TV for any TV spots for the film. I distinctly remember seeing General Grievous appear in one of the first spots and being so excited that a character who I had only seen in animated form from the Clone Wars shorts was going to get the live action treatment. When Burger King did a kids' meal promotion for the film, I slowly but surely managed to collect all of them and displayed them proudly on a shelf in my room. I even still have my ticket stub from when my family and I saw the film. Sunday, May 22nd, 2005. The opening of the film instantly blew me away, with the opening crawl being a direct recap of the final episodes of the Clone Wars micro-series that had just recently ended. I was also surprised by just how intense the film felt, Lightsaber fights happened left and right, there were more planets to explore, and so many more plot elements. I can also recall being kinda let down that we didn't get to see more of Vader in the suit, especially when he was displayed so heavily in the marketing. Overall, though, I left the theatre ecstatic that the three-year wait between the movies paid off, and I would still consider Revenge of the Sith the best of the prequel trilogy, even all these years later. Thanks for that email, Noah. That's so nice, all those memories and that excitement, and... Yeah, it's nice to have that reminder about the intersection between Revenge of the Sith and the Clone Wars, because I still haven't watched that series. I think you've watched at least some of it on Disney Plus, Kirsty. Oh, the new one. It's only just gone up. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, so I'm not sure any of us have watched it then. <laughs> the animated style looks really cool. Yeah, same. I love that animation. Um, and yeah, it's interesting how like the prequels were being informed by the animated media or at least people's expectations for them were you know and 
there was this really cool connectivity between the two. So yeah, like it's awesome to see how people registered that. I didn't realise that they showed the trailer before the OC, but I'm um, because I only watched the OC once they'd come out on DVD. But thinking back, there's that episode where Seth meets George Lucas. That must have been part of the marketing as well. Never watched the OC. I don't even know what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rabbit hole that you should go down. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Don't worry. We don't need to have a digression into the OC. I've been tempted to rewatch it, but maybe I'll have to because that's just that's really interesting. Um, cause Seth was a big Star Wars fan, so it works. But um, yeah. So I missed out on all of the marketing towards it, so I didn't realize that Vader was such a big deal in the promo. I guess that makes sense, but now you think about it, he isn't in the movie as Vader in the suit very much. So yeah. maybe that was a bit of a letdown for people. Yeah, especially because the most prominent Vader scene in the whole thing is the no. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't bring that I up. That. No. <laughs> no. I love the contrast in reaction. I love it. From and <laughs> What's the problem with you it? You dragged James Earl Jones out of like his house to record that line. It's just, oh, it's so but it's bad. It's an expression of the depth of his agony over losing Padme, Liam. Yeah. It's very important. Don't you like the fact that he asks about Padme's well-being after all that time? He still loves her. He choked her out. He didn't care about her that much. <laughs> well, he obviously does. He wakes up in complete agony and she's who he's asking for. I mean, <laughs> after an almighty lightsaber fight with Obi-Wan where he gets his ass kicked... <laughs> He was like I on the dark side, like... Bender Liam. You've got to give him some like levity. I'm sorry. I love Darth Vader, but I just think it's hilarious that at that point he's like still half expects Padme to be by his side. But uh, after <laughs> I choked her out and probably killed her, why is she not Where's here? Where's Padme? Is she, is she okay? And the Emperor's like, mate, <laughs> you killed her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like no. It just shows that Anakin is not really himself. And it's a bit like, how does Vader even think Padme is going to react to him in that state? You know, it's like, what does he envisage their relationship looking like at that point? Tiny little sure Vader baby. Of this exists, but yeah, he's in complete denial over what he's done and what oh. he's become. I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's still it's the early such days. Such a I bad scene. <laughs> See, I just don't feel that way. I get why other people do, but the prequels just are what they are for me. I don't know. Yeah. Does that sound bad? <laughs> no, I'm with you, Kirsty. Like, you're definitely not alone in that. I'm willing to forgive a lot in the prequels, but that, even more than Attack of the Clones. Is it because you'd waited so long to see him as Vader, and that just wasn't what you expected? <sighs> that might be part of it, um, but even re-watching it, I was just there like, oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go again. Because, um, of course, they, they edited... Um, Return of the Jedi, so that his his silent saving of Luke is suddenly him saying no or whatever it was, mm. and I'm just like, what? Why? I think they only did that after Revenge of the Sith came yeah, out. Yeah, they was did. The DVDs. Yeah. And yeah, like I'm not speaking for you, Liam, when I say this. Like, and this may or not be true for you, but I feel like part of the negative reaction to that, like moment where Vader's asking about Padme and like goes no. Like, obviously, there's like a certain silliness about the delivery of the whole no bit, you know, so I can understand like cringing a bit at that. But I think part of the 
rejection of it, you know, in the like shudder it brings out in some people. I think part of it might be that Vader in the popular imagination is this like stoic, calm, emotionless badass. You know, and obviously he shows emotion at the end of his life, you know, with Luke. But I think that for some fans, seeing him like express emotion so transparently, especially because it's like romantic love, you know, and romantic attachment to Padme, which I hate to say it, but people do perceive that differently from parental love. I I feel like that sort of coloured the moment in like a way that just struck a discordant note with some people. Like, how would you respond to that, Liam? Because obviously I don't want to speak for you as you're the person who has the problems with that particular moment. I would agree with your statement. But as a counter okay. as a counter argument, mm-hmm. it's not that asking for Padme that well, yeah, it is out of place considering what he's done previously. That's a little bit odd. Maybe should have thought that through a bit more. But <laughs> the whole fact that Vader becomes this stoic character, um, that can have traces to the fact that he's lost Padme, and that's the last of his humanity, as it were. Um, so it could work, but I feel like the actions that he does towards Padme would completely negate any of that feeling. And, yeah. But I would agree with what you say. It is a, it is a valid argument, you know, that people mm. have this vision of Vader, as I do. I mean, we discussed... Kylo Ren and Vader comparisons when I watch The Force Awakens with you. Um, Mm. But it is one of those where, again, I just feel like it didn't make sense, and I think that's what irritated me. Um, And the no is just very, very silly. I mean, if he'd just done this almighty scream as he's wrecking the room, I think I'd be more accepting of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, the sort of thing. <laughs> just sounds all very acme. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah. Saint Wiley Coyote might say as he falls off a cliff. Not something that <laughs> Darth Vader would say. Yeah. No, just really interesting to get your perspective, Liam. Like, do you have anything final to say about it, Kirsty? I think what makes it okay for me is that we do get the stoic Vader in the next time we see him when he's walking up. And they see the Death Star. Mm. And then he's yeah. silenced. Like, that's the last shred of his humanity. He realizes that Padme's gone. Nothing's left for him. His mum's gone. Obi-Wan's gone. Everyone's gone. And now he's Vader. And he's silent. You know? Yeah. So, for me, that's what makes it work. But I understand why it wouldn't work for other people. Yeah. No, I think I'm with you, Kirsty. Um, and yeah, I think just that feeling that the way. It- Anakin behaves towards Padme on Mustafar, you know, which is obviously horrible and violent and like, awful, you know, like all the adjectives. I don't think that like negates the reality that she's the most important person in his life still, you know. So I think it's very much framed as like this like awful lashing out, you know, and he still has this like strength of feeling and obsession with her. And it's not healthy and it's not like framed in a positive light, obviously, when he's being violent towards her. But like just because he behaves that way, it doesn't mean that like he feels nothing towards her. I don't know. I'm expressing myself poorly, but um, yeah. 
I think this is where Star Wars gets kind of murky with the whole light side, dark side. Like there's the force element of it and then there's the human choice and action, right? Because there's mm. all this emphasis on, well, when the dark side consumes you, it's like a drug. It, you know, it's intoxicating and it makes you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. So that's kind of how they get around. It's not like they're excusing the actions, but it is like it takes over them, you know? Yeah. No, 100%. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that was a lengthy discussion about your email, Noah. But thank you for prompting that because I enjoyed that discussion. It was interesting. Um, Okay, Liam, could you read out Kim's email, please? With pleasure. As you have requested stories from Revenge of the Sith, here is mine. When the last prequel came out, I was in the US Navy and stationed overseas. Every Friday we would have quarters, and starting about three months out, I started a countdown to the release of the movie. The last thing I mentioned every Friday was how many days until Sith came out. My guys got a big kick out of it. Release day, the base movie theatre basically had a party where we all stood in line and they provided food and trivia contests and we all sang The Saga Begins together. It was so much fun. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) That's really awesome. I just love that anecdote, you know, especially because that's such an unusual situation in which to see the movie you know obviously like on a military base um because yeah like i think that is um very common you know like on military bases they do usually have their own cinemas and yeah that's just so awesome to hear about that like party spirit that surrounded the movie so yeah super awesome i love it thank you kim okay cool then we have a really really epic email um, oh my god that i'm gonna give it to kirsty very kindly because kirsty is the best reader okay my name is Andres Alvarez and I'm one of four co-hosts on Sifty Minutes, a politics and Star Wars podcast. For me, I remember Revenge of the Sith most clearly as it is my favourite movie in the prequel trilogy and possibly overall. My father, who has since passed away and I saw it together, opening weekend, which was great since I could not drive myself at that age in my life. Specifically, my mind vividly recalls me having to go to the bathroom just as Anakin had pledged himself to Palpatine and me being determined to hold it in and not miss a moment of Vader's first steps as a Sith Lord. For me, watching that movie that was at the time the final word in the Skywalker saga with my father is a treasured memory. Every time that scene comes on for me, it is a warm return to a simpler time, when all I had to worry about was not missing a second in a movie theatre. What also had struck me by the time I got home was how the Empire was ultimately explained. The Clone Wars were not between a Republic and an Empire, it was a simple simple political sleight of hand at the very sloppy end of the war. I would start high school the following year and go into debate and join mock congress, eventually becoming the captain of our nationally ranked team by my senior year. For me, the allure of congress was not just the ability to do great work, as Padme had shown throughout the prequels, but to also understand how government works to prevent a Palpatine move from occurring in whatever way I could as a citizen within a democracy. Revenge of the Sith was a movie that showed me a big villain didn't always need a big move to win. What Palpatine did was brazen and as evil as can be, but was covered up with a few sentences and reframed as a just and righteous action. I also remember the prevailing attitude of hatred for Jar Jar in the fandom, and how as a kid I really connected with him but had suppressed that connection due to the general hatred of the character. As a child, Jar Jar's actions in Attack of the Clones had helped me follow along before that political awakening. Attack of the Clones is always a little fuzzy for me because it was a bit denser in plot and narrative, but having loved Jar Jar as an even smaller child when Phantom Menace came out, I was at least able to follow his arc. From there, 
The moment he gives emergency power to Palpatine, it set the stage for the political masterstroke that would come in the conclusion of the trilogy in my mind. Jar Jar is both an example of the good that people are capable of as a galactic senator, and the Gungan that helped unite Naboo, and an example of the horrible mistakes we can make as people like the emergency powers motion. In both examples, the only difference is the suggestions of the motivations from the people around him. Growing up with these films, Jar Jar was a childlike character who was able to show the progression of the prequel trilogies in an adjustable way for a seven-year-old kid, my age when Phantom Menace hit theatres, to a 13-year-old teenager by Revenge of the Sith. As an adult, I gained nuance from Qui-Gon and Sheev, but there was no way I would have understood the political angles of Star Wars as well by Revenge of the Sith if a character like Jar Jar wasn't there to get me through those plots in a relatable fashion. That is a really good point. Mm. I'm glad that he raised that point because that is that is so fantastically detailed as well, and it is a valid point about Jar Jar. You know, um, he is seen as this sort of silly, goofy character that everyone seems to hate on. But yeah, reading that, it, it's it stirred a reaction out of me as well. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's a valid point because he thinks that he's doing right in that moment, and he. He believes, oh yeah, this is this is the right thing to do. We need to help everyone. When he, you know, he's a truly neutral character because he's just thinking of the best scenario for everybody. And unfortunately, it leads to it leads to an empire. But yeah, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's not just Jar Jar either. It struck me when watching um, the Phantom Menace. Like Padme is completely manipulated. He basically holds the planet hostage that they're both from to get her to call the vote of no confidence against the existing chancellor and then he he moves into that place as a result of that and at the end of the movie she's congratulating him because she sees that as a good thing you know they have no idea of what's to come yeah and it's interesting isn't it how it's all framed because like you say palpatine becoming chancellor obviously there's like a few little like hints at the fact that he's a bit slimy but for the most part, he is framed as like a good person, you know, he's framed in a positive light. So it's quite compelling because it makes you sympathise with like Padme's perspective, you know, like from her point of view, pa- Palpatine is doing everything right by her and right by Naboo. You know, everything he says is logical and makes sense. And she's happy to support him on that basis. And then obviously by the point you get to Revenge of the Sith, it's all gone terribly wrong. You can see when she's like watching, like Palpatine sees complete control essentially, that she's realizing exactly how badly wrong everything has gone. And yeah, like I feel like as an adult looking back, I can finally appreciate the political aspects of the prequels in a way I never could as a kid. And they're definitely one of the more interesting through lines in those films. And yeah, I'm glad that Jar Jar, obviously, his role is dramatically scaled back in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith but it is satisfying to me that at the very least even though he has a much smaller role in those films it is a role that has real consequences and it does ultimately make a statement you know so it's awesome to see like people actually latch onto that and derive this like real meaning from it and I also just wanted to quickly say we were obviously really sorry about your dad but I'm glad that you obviously still have those really special memories to hold on to of that time yeah, so thank you very much for that email. That was so interesting and thought-provoking. 
And yep, it sounds like a good reason to check out Siffy Minutes, because if you're making such great observations in your email, then your podcast should be pretty damn fascinating. So yeah, thank you for that. Okay, cool. Then we have our final email of the episode, um, and this one is from Lava Castle. And now we come to the end. Revenge! Many exclamation marks. The most bittersweet film, as far as we knew it was the last. Though an interview I recall from Williams saying nonchalantly, there'll be more, always comes to mind even now. And I was ready. This was it. Anakin was going to fall. We knew this, but not the how or the when. Dread isn't usually exciting, but it was this time. We were going to see Vader be born. I recall being far too invested in General Grievous. (laughs) They hyped the man up so much for so little. I brought so many figures of him, lol. Revenge was a movie I felt more than watched, honestly. I was seizing the closing of the circle and didn't quite understand it at the time, I suppose. I didn't quite realise it was over on the ride home that night. And in some ways it didn't end, not really. And not even because they made more, but because I can still feel that moment of the doors opening on Naboo, unveiling more, of Anakin and Padme's confession in the Geonosis arena. Oh, I can't believe we didn't mention that. Of Obi-Wan's pain filled. You were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. The prequels left an impact, so no matter how much some may decry the effects or complain of the romance, they will, much like the Force, be with us always. Oh, that's beautiful. So nice. I love it. And yeah, so true, because regardless of what anyone feels like, they're part of the myth of Star Wars, you know, and yeah, they're not going anywhere, basically. And I'm happy about that, personally. So I think for all their faults, I think they still tell a really interesting story with some great characters and more building. Yeah, I think it's that they're they're greater than the sum of their parts, right? That they build so much on the world that we understood Star Wars to be in the original trilogy and and where Darth Vader had come from and what Palpatine was all about and everything. Like, there's just so much that they add that it's even now it's hard to fully appreciate it all. I I find that re-watching them over the last few days, I've had, like, I've changed my opinions on them so much throughout the years. And it is quite interesting to see like other people's reactions to them like they they've absolutely adored the prequels whereas there was a period in my life that I I wouldn't really consider rewatching them but rewatching them now I can appreciate other parts of the films that I maybe not noticed before and even then uh, when reading Andreas's email that that's something that when I rewatch, say, Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith again in a few months' time, I'm going to be looking at that because that's a whole nother level to the films that I can watch. And yeah, as much as I think I agree, as much as people will say that the prequels don't add any value or that they they ruin the childhood, and it's <laughs> oh, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> They, they do offer something different, and that's ultimately what I want from my Star Wars films. No, 100%. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about the prequels. The fact that George really just didn't care about what anyone was expecting, what anyone might have wanted from these films. He had his ideas in his head about the type of story he wanted to tell and how he was going to tell it, and he stuck to those. And obviously there were like some alterations as it went along you know like originally Jar Jar was meant to play a more prominent role across the whole trilogy and his role was much reduced but 
I think fundamentally the story he wanted to tell about, you know, like a little boy who loses his mother and the like ripple effect that has across his whole life and eventually across the future of the galaxy. I think that remains very true across all the prequels as they stand. And I think that is a really interesting, compelling story, especially in this type of genre. You know, we're often like it's all about the spectacle and obviously there's plenty of spectacle in the prequels you know there's like heavy cgi but i think it's all beautiful and it holds up really well in my opinion you know it still looks me too yeah it does that's the one thing i took from revenge of the sith last night was just how well the cgi held up yeah um and that was what 16 years ago and there are films that you look from back that era where it was just really quite weird, but, you know, it holds up really well. Yeah, I thought that while watching The Phantom Menace. I was like, this looks great. Yeah, like, you know, sometimes you see about, like, creators going back to their films and updating the special effects to, you know, make it more modern. But I feel like to do something like that with Phantom Menace, it's almost, like, pointless, you know? Like, it's looks really tangible and really convincing and like when you look at the sort of computers they were using to do this effects work you know which you can see in the documentary the beginning which i really recommend to anyone who likes the prequels it's super fascinating like (laughs) just watching that documentary the computers they're using they're so slow and the resolution is so poor and it's like god how it's like magic you know that they achieved what they did with the technology that was available at the time and it really did push the boundaries of what was possible in terms of special effects and yeah it's just really really remarkable i started watching the beginning last night i didn't finish it but it was really lovely to see george's enthusiasm and confidence Mm, yeah he just he just seemed really excited to tell this new chapter of the story and like you say it just had like a confidence in it being something new and You know, there might be some fans that like it and some that don't and whatever, you know, he's going to do what he wants to do. Yeah, exactly. And you can really see the thought and the intent behind everything. Like, because, yeah, again, regardless of people's opinions of the decisions that were made with the prequels, they were all very deliberately made. You know, it wasn't by accident that Anakin was a nine-year-old rather than like a 19-year-old from the beginning, you know. Like, they were all, like, very, very intentional choices with, like, real intent behind them. And, yeah, I, I just love that purity of vision that you can see in that documentary at the beginning. It reminds me a lot of Ryan Johnson with The Last Jedi. You know, so obviously it's a bit different because that film obviously came out second in the trilogy. But you can see that parallel in the film being written, you know, before there was any feedback from fans, before anyone had seen Force Awakens or had any views on how it should be continued. You know, it's just him purely writing the story that felt most natural to tell. And yeah, I think that's very much where George was with The Phantom Menace. I agree. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Um, any final thoughts from you, Liam? In terms of how I feel about the prequels, um, I still have them where they are uh, because I have ranked the Star Wars films and I don't think re-watching the prequels has moved any of them, but I appreciate the value that they have in the Star Wars saga and, you know, it does fill in a story. You know, people would be curious about 
you know, how it all came to be. And ultimately, I think that's why the way people should look at them. And it may not be exactly how you want it, but it's never going to be. Every person's idea of how it was going to happen would be different. You know, my view of it would be different to yours or Kirsty's views. And yeah, I feel like there's still stuff to enjoy in every single film. And it does try something different and they are committed to it. You know, they're committed to telling the story and whether it be flippy Yoda or a Gungan getting his uh, tongue stuck between electricity on a pod racer <laughs> or some of the more heavier moments like Anakin finding his dying mother or um, just having Obi-Wan's sort of heartbreak at the fact that he's going to have to fight the person that he considers his brother, um, even though it's not built upon that much in the films. But um, maybe the series will delve into it. There's something for everyone still, and I, on a little aside, I remember going up to my friend's birthday, and we were doing a Star Wars escape room, and one of the things I remember was his daughter was dressed up like Rey Skywalker, uh, as we now know her, but she was dressed up as Rey, um, his other daughter was dressed up as a BB-8, and I remember that they were watching The Phantom Menace, and she was so engrossed in it and she had seen the original trilogy um, but to see someone that young still engrossed in Star Wars that's ultimately how people should appreciate these films you know as much as you may hate it because you know it's not exactly how the, your childhood remembers I think it was mentioned in an email um, where someone rolls his eyes at a kid being excited about Star Wars that's ultimately what they're there for, for a child to then grow into a fan of Star Wars and make their own opinions, and they may see the films differently. We saw them at the time they came out. These kids are seeing them 20 years later, and it's just incredible to see them have that reaction still. And, you know, it, it's something that I hope that my kid has in the future, that I'm going to show him Star Wars and he's he'll maybe think they're rubbish, or he may think they're the greatest things ever, but that doesn't matter, because they'll, he'll make those opinions himself, and hopefully he'll enjoy them, and uh, will want a double-edged lightsaber, and then I can just fight <laughs> him with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's lovely, Liam. Yeah, so well expressed, and yeah, some A-plus parenting there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really cool to expose like your kids to the stuff that you like, as long as you then free them to think of that thing, whatever the hell they want, basically. Yeah, which it sounds like that's exactly what you're going to do. And obviously you don't need to think about that right now because your son's still very young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's lovely. Um, yeah, any final thoughts from you, Kirsty? Um, Not a lot. Just when I think about the prequels as a whole, I really do love the story that they tell, even if I don't love the way it's executed in every single scene. Mm. You know, the big picture romantic tragedy of it all and Anakin's descent into the dark side and knowing that he'll come back through the love of his son eventually like what's not to love you know I really enjoy all of that so yeah there might be certain side characters that I could do without and certain choices they make with the dialogue but really broad strokes I think it's great and I can't imagine the Star Wars universe without it now 
Yeah. And and they were the first Star Wars movies I saw in theaters. You know, I'd seen the original trilogy, but I was nine years old when The Phantom Menace came out. So it really was like I grew up with them. And just thinking now, like you said, Liam, about young kids now getting invested in the sequel trilogy in a similar way and like looking at the prequels as the older trilogy. That's really interesting to think about how they must be receiving those stories completely differently. Yeah. No, exactly. It's fascinating, especially looking back at it all as like one huge story, you know, with none of that like interim between films to like build up these ideas about what the next one might be. You know, it's just this thing about looking at the story, accepting it as it is, and then deciding whether they like it or not. And in a way, that's really freeing, you know, because there isn't that like weight of expectation about oh, you have the right idea about what this is all leading to, or like, oh no, you have the right idea about what this is all leading to, (laughs) you know, and yeah, I I think it's really nice to just separate from that, breathe, and just look at it for what it is, and appreciate it on that level. So yeah, it's been really nice to revisit this much more innocent time in our (laughs) lives, when we were all just like starry-eyed, and just waiting for each film as a kid, and not having any particularly like detailed or elaborate expectations for it and yeah i really enjoyed this discussion so thank you very much for joining me for it guys it was a lot of fun thanks liam for coming on thank you for having me on um I was, <laughs> yeah no thank you like i said I, I was terrified i was absolutely terrified <laughs> oh well, that makes me feel bad <laughs> well not in a scary way it's like this this podcast is amazing and um like it's it's essentially it's the first one that i've been on that i've not presented um in like some sort of capacity or creative myself so i was like i must get this right because um, <laughs> i really do love this show as well so uh obviously i remember rachel discussing it and uh then basically following including that four hour marathon on the rise of skywalker um <laughs> don't remind us (laughs) it was beautiful it was beautiful definitely took me three attempts to listen to it all but it was beautiful it always blows my mind that anyone ever actually listens to that episode but yeah it's might be like our most popular episode of all time for some reason but yeah i guess a lot of people wanted to hear opinions about that movie um but yeah thank you so much liam uh yeah it's been great to have you on and yeah people go and check out the paradise cine podcast um where can people find it liam so uh i'm on all good podcast outlets uh because i'm a cheapskate and use a podcast hosting site uh so you can find me on spotify on google podcasts on podbean and various things like that you can uh follow it on twitter at paradise cine pod um i occasionally make quips about how editing is going on there and if you did want to follow my Twitter, I'm not sure why, unless you were really into women's football and ranting, um, <laughs> you can find me at, at Liam the Mason. Awesome. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kersey, and you can find us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. 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 bye.